few announcements. We're in the early stages of creating this new leadership structure. If you are here last week, I talked about that. Stonebridge is your home church. We want you to consider uh, nominating people into that role. Uh, you can go back and listen to the tail end of the message last week. We edited that out so you can only listen. You can just listen to that five or ten minutes if you missed that. There's a family dinner a few weeks ago where I gave some more foundation. Listen to that, and then uh, look for then uh, grab one of those cards out of the welcome room and fill out a nomination card for us. We'd love for you to do that. If you have any questions, you can see me, but you can grab all that information in the welcome center or, or online. Um, also, some of you know we're trying to hire a new pastor, associate pastor, somebody to help with small groups and assimilation, and all that information is in the worship center as or welcome room as well. You can grab that if you're interested or if you know somebody who may be. Okay, another way you can participate during Lent. Lent is the six Wednesday or the six weeks from Ash Wednesday to Easter, not counting Sundays, if that makes sense. Six weeks from Ash Wednesday to Easter, and you don't count Sundays. The focus is Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, this time of preparation for us. It's preparing for Easter. Uh, Traditionally, the church with a capital C has fasted during Lent, and that's something that we've participated in, tried to do for the last six or seven years, and we will be doing that again this year. So I'd invite y'all to participate. This is what fasting is, intentionally giving up food for a certain amount of time for a certain spiritual purpose. So uh, intentionally giving up food, so you can pick a type of food. It's common for people to give up sweets uh, during Lent. Some people give up uh, meat. Some people will give up breakfast. I'm not going to eat breakfast or I'm not going to eat after six. It doesn't matter. It's just giving up particular food. Now, you know, if you're keeping score, if you give up things that you don't like, it doesn't really count. So think about that. I can't give up vegetables. One time, the worst thing I ever did was I said, I'm only going to eat things that grow, which for me was not good. Pretty soon, I was saying, well, cows grow, so I'm going to eat meat. (laughs) Chips come from corn, which grows, so I'm going to eat. So pick something that's maybe a stretch, but not impossible. Snickers grow, is that what you said? They can. So um, certain food. Certain amount of time, we're going to do Lent, six weeks. Now, one of the best things I ever read in my whole life, I don't know if it's true, but I've made it true, is that during Lent, Sundays don't count. So Sundays are called mini, or like mini resurrection days, that's what they say. So you can eat whatever you want. People who would give up sweets used to come to church with like pockets full of candy to get as much in as they could on Sunday. I don't know if that defeats the purpose, but we're going with it. So... Sundays don't count. The rest of the time does. You can say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not eat on Mondays. I'm going to skip breakfast on Wednesdays. I'm going to take just one day out of this six weeks. Whatever you want to do, it's up to you. Some of you cannot uh, fast food. Uh, you, you can't do that physically. And so it may be for you, you might want to abstain. People uh, give up Facebook or other things that take their time. That's perfectly all right, particularly if you have um, physical limitations that would keep you from fasting. So certain foods, certain period of time for a certain spiritual reason. This is not so you look good on spring break. If all you want is to lose a few pounds, that's all you're going to get is you're going to lose a few pounds, but you'll miss the spiritual um, benefit of fasting. The two things that we're going for corporately, you can pick something else, are physical healing 
and salvation. Those are two areas where we really want to see breakthrough during the course of Lent. God heals in all kinds of ways, and all of them are equally valid. Uh, what I want to push for specifically is physical healing. It's an area where we honestly have not seen tons of fruit. There have been, pop, there have been many seasons over our seven or eight years where we've seen people healed physically, but it's not a regular deal for us, and we have a lot of people who are wrestling with some serious things. And so we want to see God move in their bodies, and so we're going to pray for that. And then we also want to pray for people who are far from the Lord that God would draw them close. This is not six weeks to browbeat people. It's not six weeks to try to convince people to come to church on Easter. It's none of that. It's six weeks for you to pray and ask God to reveal himself to people who are far from him. I was in a church one time, and they did this thing during Lent. They called it 111. You pray for one person for one minute at 1 o'clock. It's a nice little reminder. You might want to think about doing something like that. Set it on your phone. But I would love for you to pick just one person and to focus on that one person uh, during Lent. One of the things in terms of prayer that we're trying to grow in is persistence. And so that's praying for the same thing over time, even when you don't see results initially. The picture in my mind is that story of the paralytic. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a guy who's paralyzed. Jesus is in his town. He can't, obviously, because he's paralyzed, get to Jesus. And he has four friends who come and put him on a mat and carry him to the house where Jesus is, cut a hole in the roof and drop him down, and then let Jesus go to work. And Jesus heals him physically and forgives him of his sins. And I think about us in that way. We want to be those friends that carry other people in prayer uh, to the Lord and let him deal with them from that point, heal them and forgive them and all those things. So we'll be talking some more about that. Uh, on Wednesday night at the Ash Wednesday service, and you'll hear some more about it next week. But you can be thinking about that and how you want to participate. Okay, great. Last week, we, uh, well, let's start back here. Luke 9.51, Jesus says, or Luke says, Jesus resolutely set out or set his face towards Jerusalem. So from 9.51 to where we are, everything has been building towards Jesus entering Jerusalem. And today we're going to look at that. We're going to read the story of Jesus Entering into Jerusalem, we've had these ten chapters. It's been months of anticipation building, excitement building. Remember, it's, it's Passover week, and so you've got thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem. It was one of the three times a year that all of the Jews were required to go to the temple to sacrifice. Um, you've also got people during Passover. They're all looking back. They're looking back to Moses. They're looking back to the Exodus event where God delivered them from slavery, and they're going, we could use somebody like that. And all of that's building. And last week we said Jesus calls a timeout before he enters Jerusalem, and he tells a parable. And the, the bottom line for us is the king will be absent, kind of quote-unquote, for a period of time. In his absence, he gives all of his people gifts, and he expects those gifts to be used for his glory, to advance his purposes, and we looked at five particular gifts. There's all kinds of gifts that God gives us, and we looked at five particular gifts from Ephesians 4, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, and we said everybody, if you're a Christian, you're wired in one or two of those ways. You're bent in one or two of those directions. You personally are a gift to the rest of us. God has bent you, wired you in one or two of those ways in order to help the rest of us grow to equip the rest of us for works of service so that we can all be matured. So the king is gone, quote-unquote, and he's given us each other 
to help mature and grow each other. And so we said we want to figure out which of those ways we lean towards, how God has wired us, and then look for opportunities to serve that way in the body. So that was last week. So today we've got Jesus entering Jerusalem. We're going to look at this in three sections. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, so what he said is, the kingdom is not coming yet. You're going to have to wait. He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So the atmosphere, it's like a, it's a victory parade. So the Super Bowl is tonight. Somebody's going to win. And next week, there'll be a parade that hopefully will not involve Cam Newton. So that's the picture for us. There's going to be, that's the scene that, that is the scene here. It's festive. People are excited. There are tons of people for parades. We litter. What they do is lay down coats and wave palm branches. This is Palm Sunday. We're just doing it a little bit early. And so everybody involved has some sense of what's going on. That's why Jesus called the timeout last week. Because last week we saw, he said, hold on, the kingdom is not coming. And now he does something very provocative. And he knew what he was doing. And so he knows this is the atmosphere. Now, I want you to keep it in mind, this is a victory parade. And Jesus hasn't died yet. And he knows, he, he knows what's in front of him. But he's riding into Jerusalem as a conquering king. So there's some Old Testament scripture that uh, is the background for all of this that everyone would have been aware of. Jesus grabbed this, his actions were rooted in Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is a prophecy of the Messiah. A king will come and he's going to ride on a colt. And so what Jesus does is he says, go get me a colt. Jesus fulfills many uh, messianic prophecies. And most of them he doesn't have any influence on. He doesn't have influence on who his parents are. He doesn't have influence on the place where he was born. But those are prophecies that his life fulfilled. He doesn't have influence on how he dies. He doesn't have influence on Roman soldiers casting lots for his clothes. He doesn't have influence on being stabbed in the side. All of those are prophecies about his death that he fulfills. But this is one time where he intentionally and deliberately says, I'm going to fulfill one of these messianic prophecies. Any of us could have gotten on a cult and ridden into Jerusalem and nobody would have cared. But we haven't spent three years working miracles, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, and kind of amping up excitement in people. And so when Jesus gets on this cult, now he spent three years walking. And the last mile of his journey, he chooses to ride. It's not because he's tired. It's because he's making a point. He's deliberately fulfilling that scripture in Zechariah 9 saying, this is who I am. And then the crowd responds. And they respond out of 2 Kings 9 where this guy named Jehu becomes king. And everybody lays their, their coats down in front of him. So them laying their coats down, they're saying, this guy is the king. 
and they quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that psalm was used for kings when they were riding back in after a victory. So this is not Jesus throwing his hat into the ring, saying, making a claim to being a king. This is Jesus saying, I am the king, and I've already won. I'm riding in victorious, and we know what's in front of him, and so does he. Arrested, mocked, betrayed, insulted, spit on, flogged, and killed. Very interesting that in front, before any of that takes place, he's saying, I've already won. Verse 41 As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So now Jesus pauses as he's going down this hill into Jerusalem and he, he gives up it's a prophetic word. It's a word of judgment. It's a it's an oracle if you like that. He's predicting the future. He's saying here's what's going to happen to you Jerusalem. I think he's spe- speaking specifically to the religious leaders. These guys who had just said, "Tell your disciples to be quiet. Tell them to stop talking to you and about you in this way." And Jesus is going in. He says, here's what's going to happen. He's brokenhearted. He's predicting judgment, but he's not reveling in it. He's upset. He's weeping. One of, the, one of only two times in the Gospels we see Jesus weeping. And it's, it's, it's over this city, over these leaders who are about to betray him and hand, hand him over to his death. And he says, y'all missed it. You missed it. God has come to you and you've rejected him. You're asking for peace, and you think peace comes through a military leader who's going to fight the Roman army. You think your issues are all horizontal. You've missed it completely. I've spent three years trying to tell you what would actually bring you peace. I've spent three years trying to tell you your root issue is vertical, and if you can clean that up, then the rest of this stuff can be taken care of as well. I've spent three years trying to get you guys to open your eyes to your situation Far from God. Religious leaders, you think you're close. You're not. You've rejected the one who God has sent, and there are consequences to that. And this whole city is going to be leveled. And it happens in 70 A.D. A Jewish historian named Josephus writes about it. They build a wall around the wall of Jerusalem. That's that idea of of building an embankment. And then when they overtake the city, they wipe it out. Josephus says you can't even tell there was ever a wall there. That's how much they level the city. It's total destruction. And Jesus predicts it 40 years in advance. And he says, this is the result of y'all rejecting God coming to you through me. And again, he's not happy about it at all. It's not, he's not saying, you guys have done me wrong, and so this is what you're going to get. It's not that at all. He's brokenhearted because these people who he's loved have missed him. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written... He said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. So now Jesus goes to the temple and he drives out some people who are selling animals. We know that from Matthew and Mark. And he drives out some people who are changing money. Both of those things. But those guys were actually fulfilling 
um, necessary services. So three times a year, Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem to participate in worship. And they had to pay a tax, a temple tax, and it had to be in the local currency. So you've got guys coming from all over the Roman Empire, and they don't, they don't have dollars. They've got pesos. And so they need somebody to change their money. Any of you have been to another country, like, you've got to have that. And so they were doing that. And there were also required sacrifices, goats or pigeons or sheep or cows or whatever it was. You had required sacrifices, and it was hard to get the animals there. And so people would just bring money, and they'd buy the animal once they got there. These guys are fulfilling necessary functions, and they're, they're facilitating obedience in some ways. The Old Testament says, pay this tax and sacrifice these animals, and so we're going to help you pay that tax by changing the money into the right currency, and we're going to help you sacrifice animals by having them here, the ones that are suitable for sacrifice. We're selling those here. So why does Jesus get upset if people are doing things that, that, that kind of need to be done? They're fulfilling a need. I'm... Certain people were being gouged, just like in any setting where, you, where there's that need and people know you need what they've got. I'm sure people were being gouged. Yes, and I'm sure that was upsetting to him, but that's not really the direction that he goes. I think there's two things that he's got in mind. One, this is Palm Sunday. I think he's looking ahead to Easter Sunday, just one week down the road. And he's saying all this is about to be obsolete. This, none of this is going to matter in a week. And I think it's kind of a prophetic act. He's saying, all of these guys, we, we don't need them anymore. You're not going to have to come to a temple anymore. You don't have to make a pilgrimage anywhere anymore. First Corinthians said, individually, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And collectively, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There are no sacred spaces where God dwells. And we all have to go to that space if we want to meet God. That's not true anymore. And you don't have to sacrifice animals anymore. No more goats, no more sheep, no more pigeons, no more cows. All of that's done with the sacrifice that Jesus will make five days from when he turns those tables over. I think some of that is what's going on. I also think what's going on is he says, my house or my father's house or this house is supposed to be a house of prayer. That's from Isaiah 56. If you read Isaiah 56, the whole chapter is saying, come on in. All of you who feel like you're far off, eunuchs, come on in. Foreigners, come on in. All of you people who think you're cut off from the people of God, Isaiah 56 says he is inviting you into relationship with him. So the temple, this structure, is supposed to be a beacon of salvation. It should be this physical sign that says to everybody, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, God wants you. What we talked about earlier. That's the picture of the temple, theoretically, idealistically. It's God saying, come on in. Wherever you are, I want relationship with you. That's what this building represents. It represents me, God, saying, I want you. And what y'all have done is you've taken that and you've completely perverted it. You've twisted it. You've made it a den of robbers. That's taken from Jeremiah 7 where Jeremiah is saying to the leaders of his day, don't think that you can live in this wicked, evil, immoral, idolatrous way that you're living, and God is not going to punish you just because you've got that building down the street. That's what they thought. We can do whatever we want, but because we have the temple, God is not going to destroy us. And Jeremiah says that's not true. He is coming for you, and he doesn't care that there's a temple there. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Y'all taking this thing, this should be a billboard 
that says this way to God, and what you've made it is this do not enter sign. You've made it this place where nobody can get in. What does he say about the religious leaders? He says, you put heavy loads on people's backs and you don't lift a finger to help them carry it. You travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when you're successful, you make that convert twice as much a son of hell as you are. You're not entering the kingdom and you're preventing other people from doing it. That's what Jesus has said about religious leaders during the last third of his public ministry when they continue to... Resist him and resist him and resist him. And he's saying this temple is a picture of everything wrong with what y'all are doing. And so it's done. It's about to be taken care of. So for us, we we look at that. We listen to that one-time, non-repeatable historical event. So what does that mean for us? So Jesus rides into Jerusalem, great. He rides in as a king, great. He predicts Jerusalem's fall. It happened. You can go back and read. It happened in 70 A.D., which is 2,000 years ago. doesn't affect us. He turns over tables in a temple that we've never even been to. We don't do that here. And so how do those things connect in with who we are today? Uh, One thing that I thought of, you may think of something else. One thing I thought of, traditionally, people have divided Jesus' roles into three categories. People say Jesus is a prophet, and he's a priest, and he's a king. Those are three roles, and people say just about everything he's done, you could put under one of those three categories. A guy named Eusebius, you don't care, came up with this in um, the early 300s, and people have kind of grabbed onto it and used it over the last 1,700 years to give them categories for understanding what Jesus has done, and then more importantly, how we relate to him. It kind of fills out a picture of who he is and lets you know exactly what he's done and how you can grab onto him. So prophet... That's the mouthpiece of God. So if you think of God and you think of people, the prophet stands in between and he tells everybody, here's what God says. Remember the Old Testament prophets. Thus says the Lord. They're revealing the will of God to the people of God. The idea is, well, people can't necessarily hear God on their own at this point in history. And so we need prophets to reveal God's will to us to tell us what God is saying to us. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, you need to look for another prophet with a capital P. You need to look for someone else like me. God's going to send you someone else like me, and you need to listen to what he says. Jesus fulfills that. He's the word become flesh. When he speaks, he never says, thus says the Lord. You know what he says? Truly I say to you. He doesn't draw his authority from any external source. It's inherent in who he is. It's intrinsic to him as the son of God, as this prophet. So Jesus is in between humanity and God. But whereas a prophet stands with his face towards people and says, here's what God is saying to you. Priest stands with his face towards God and says, let me make these people acceptable to you. And so they offer sacrifices to take care of our sins so we can stand in the presence of God. They pray for us. That's what priests do. They're intercessors or mediators between humanity and God. Again, think of the Old Testament priests. That's what they did. They spent all day long sacrificing animals so that people could be at least outwardly clean so they would be acceptable to God. Jesus is that for us. He's a great high priest for us. He also is the ultimate sacrifice for us, so no more animals need to be killed. Psalm 110 says that, that that's, a, that's a sign, that's a signal, that's, a, that's an indication of the one that I'm going to send. He's going to be a priest as well. 
in the order of Melchizedek. We don't have time to talk about what that means. You can read Hebrews, particularly 8 through 10. It's this discourse on what it means for Jesus to be a priest for us. I became a Christian when I was 12. I'll be 41 on Saturday, so 30 years. And so sometimes for me, I lose sight of what it means for Jesus to be my priest, for Jesus to, be, to, to have sacrificed for my sin, because it's been a long time since I felt guilty, if that makes sense. I've been a Christian for a long time, and you don't get in a whole lot of trouble before 12. And so for me, definitely I had a sense of separation from God when I was 12 years old, and I said yes, and it was real. For, it was. It was a real uh, conversion experience for me. But it was a long time ago, and again, I can't remember what it was like beforehand. I can't remember what it was like to feel guilty. I can't remember what it was like to feel separated. I can't remember what it was like to feel this weight of my own sinfulness that I can't do anything about. I can't remember what it was like to feel alienated or isolated from God. And I don't want to feel those things anymore. But it can cause me to take for granted Jesus' death on my behalf. We were singing those last two songs uh, this morning. That's one of the things that was kind of running through my mind was, is there a, how do I reconnect with that salvation experience. I'm not going to go out and do something dumb so I can then feel forgiven. That's not the solution. But it's trying to ask the Lord, remind me and show me now the things that you have forgiven me from yesterday. Show me this great sacrifice that you made and how that connects to me. That may be something for you to meditate on during Lent. If you're like me and you've been a Christian for a long time and it's been a while, and maybe you take for granted Jesus' death on your behalf and the fact that your sins have been forgiven. When God looks at you, all he sees is pure and holy and righteous. If it's been a while since you've experienced the reality of that exchange, you may want to think about that. Kings rule. They maintain peace. They defend. They protect. A king is not a paper pusher. A king in the Old Testament is at the he's front line guy. He's leading his people. He leads his people, his army into battle. This one who God promised would also be a king. Isaiah, you know that passage from Christmas, famous Christmas passage. There's going to be one and he's going to rule and he's going to reign. He's going to sit on David's throne metaphorically. And we know from the New Testament, Jesus is that king. Philippians 2 is just one scripture that points that out. Everyone's going to bow before him, either because they love him or because they fear him. But everybody's going to recognize that he's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. So here's what I want you thinking about. Prophet, priest, king. Which one would you say, what, what do you need him to be to you? He's all of them. But as you think about your own life, do you need the will of God revealed? Are you looking for direction? Do you need to be reminded of your reconciliation to God? Or do you need to be reconciled to God? Do you need Jesus as priest? King, is there an area of your life where God is not ruling or reigning? Let me give you one more grid to look at this. So this is just me. You may think of a different way of thinking about your life. But I thought of these four concentric circles. So in the center, it's just, it's me. It's personal. Prophet, priest, king. So what does it look like for Jesus to be that? Do I I, I need him in my own life in one of those three ways? Next circle out. I called it your, your home, or if you use Jesus 3, 12 
70 crowds. Those are the, peop- the levels of relationship. It's, it's the three, the people who are closest to the close. It's people who have the same last name as you probably and a handful of others. You're almost your daily, your every other day contacts, people who know your insides and you know their insides. The next one out, maybe you call it your 12, or if you use that Acts 1-8, it's your Judea, it's your work. It spends a lot of, you spend a lot of time there. Those people may not be as close to you in terms of relationship. They know you. They may not know the depth, but they know you. And then farther out, that community, the, the ends of the earth, uh, it's, your, it, it's, it's Cobb County or something like that. For you, it's where your home and your work are the context that they're in. So this is what I want you thinking about, and we're going to pray about this. I want you to pick a circle, and we'll do this prayerfully, or you can just throw a dart. We're going to pick a circle, and then you're going to pick a role, prophet, priest, or king. And we're going to, again, we'll try to do this prayerfully. And the point, there's 12 options, and you're going to just pick one so it's not overwhelming. We're just going to ask the Lord. We're going to ask Jesus, say, we we need you to be this. I need you to be this in this circle of my life. I need you to be the king in my community. So for me, that might be the square. I need you to be the king here. Or I may say, I need you to be a a prophet in my work life. You may say, I need you to be a priest for me personally because I'm feeling dead on the inside, or I'm feeling estranged from you, or I'm feeling isolated. So you get that? So close your eyes, please. And we're going to pray, kind of see where this goes. So you're thinking circles, and you're thinking roles. We'll do circles first. You may like to think about both of them together. That's okay. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us and you would show us in our own life, however it is that we conceive of our life. For some people, it's not circles, it's geography, or it's bands of relationship, whatever it is for us, for each man and woman and student in this room. God, I pray that you would just put your finger on one and say, that's where I want you looking right now. There's something maybe in your mind. And then... God, we're asking that you would show us these roles. Jesus is all of these things all of the time. But what are you specifically wanting to do in that circle that you highlighted? Is it reconciling people to God? King, ruling, reigning, defending, overthrowing evil, establishing good. What is it? So hopefully you have one of each. If you don't, then you can just make something up and run with it. You have a circle and you have a role. And this is what I want you, if you're willing to, to pray in your heart. Jesus, I pray that you would be fill in the blank in fill in the blank. Jesus, I pray you would be fill in the blank in fill in the blank in my life. Now, here's the next thing. Oftentimes, 
Jesus chooses to work through his people, which is you. And so there may be some level of responsibility for you in that prayer. He may want to use you as someone who helps reveal the will of God. He may want to use you as someone who helps advance his kingdom. He may. He may not. But he may. And so if you're willing, just in your heart, you can pray, And God, whatever my responsibility is in this, whatever it looks like for me to cooperate with what you're doing in that sphere of my life, I'll say yes. And I pray you would show me what the next step is. And you may have a thought or an idea what that next step may be. And if you do, you can just say, God, I'll do it. I'll go ahead and say yes now on the front end. So God, I pray for everyone in this room. We want to see you and we want to know you. First, that's my prayer, is that everyone in this room, youngest to oldest, would know you, Jesus, for who you really are. I pray over the six weeks of Lent, our relationship with you individually would grow deeper and fuller and richer, that we would know you as prophet and priest and king and shepherd and teacher, as friend. We would know you as in your grace. We'd know you in your love. We'd know you in your mercy and your power. We'd know you in your compassion. We would know the, the fullness of who you are. As much as we can know you this side of heaven, God, I pray that we would. And I pray that you would stir a, a hunger and a thirst in us to know you better. That we would not grow complacent. We would not get uh, overly familiar with you. and Which you would stir within and you captivate our hearts again. And God, I pray for all of our circles. Again, however we conceive of our life. I pray that all the way through our life, from our most private to our most public. God, I pray that the people who we encounter in each one of those spheres would know Jesus fully for who he is. Most of us, God, honestly, we tend to think only in terms of our own hearts and our own homes. Rarely do we think beyond that. And I pray that you would begin to expand our horizon, that we would recognize there is no place that you don't own. The earth is yours and everything in it. We would realize there's no place that we go that you aren't already there. And we would realize you're you're the Lord of all of that. And you want to make things new in every one of those spaces. You want to redeem all of it. And so, God, I pray that we would see you over the next six weeks moving out. Yes, in our hearts. Yes, in our homes. But beyond, God, I pray that we would see your son, prophet, priest, and king. The places where we work and go to school, in our community. God, we want everybody in Marietta, Smyrna, Kennesaw, Cobb County. We want them to know the name, but we don't want any of them to say, I don't know. So use us in whatever way you want to, to make that happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. We're going to close with uh, one song of ministry. We'll have ministry teams here up front. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on, anything at all we would love to pray with you. Uh, Otherwise, you can just worship along with Bo, and then he'll dismiss us after the song. You guys can stand. Ministry teams, if you guys would come forward.